The Live Exchange Conference is your chance to find out what's happening in the livestock export industry with a program that features thought-provoking and informative speakers. Open to all members of the supply chain, you can network with around 400 delegates from across the country, with several social events and a variety of trade exhibits. Live Exchange is being held on the 9th and 10th of November 2022. Visit liveexchange.com.au to get your tickets. Listening to the Central Station Podcast, where we bring you true stories of what life in the outback is really like and why many wouldn't live anywhere else. So pull up a stump, pop the billy on, or crack a cold one as we talk to the men and women who call some of the most remote parts of Australia home. This podcast is brought to you by Ariat Australia, the perfect choice for the tough jobs. Ariat boots and clothing work hard, look good, and are so comfortable there's never a need to slow down. Visit ariat.com.au today. What could a hitchhiker and a flying doctor have in common? Well, as it turns out, a lot, because in this case, they are one and the same people. Our guest today is Dr. Gregory Winterflood, an esteemed doctor who began his medical career in Alice Springs. Even though he was born and raised in Queensland and practiced medicine around Australia and overseas, he always seemed to find his way back to the Red Centre. In this episode, Gregory shares stories from his days as a young fella hitchhiking through New Zealand and Australia, his unconventional pathway into a medical degree, and memories from his time working as the district medical officer, including his role as a flying doctor. To start our conversation, I asked Gregory to tell me about his day's hitchhiking. My hitchhiking adventures. I'm not sure who encouraged me to hitchhike. I'd probably read On the Road by Jack Kerouac by the time I started uh, being able to independently go somewhere, but it was my father who... Uh, said at the end of 12th grade, so I was probably depressed at the time, uh, having come back from being in the US for a year where everything was magic. Uh, and anyway, Dad said, why don't you go to New Zealand? And he organised a ticket for me to go on a tramp steamer. I call it tramp steamer because it's, uh, you know, <laughs> it makes the story better. <laughs> anyway, off I went and... Um, I was befriended by a couple of people who helped me sort out myself. It was the first time I'd been travelling, especially overseas by myself. Somehow I started hitchhiking and uh, I went around the the, uh, the top island, the North Island, everywhere below Auckland, as it were, and then down to the south. Um, the thing I remember most about that bit was getting to a place called Alexandra, uh, at the bottom of the South Island uh, on the Clutha River, which shone with this iridescent blue water. Amazing. Um, there was a lot of mica in the water. They've dammed that river now. 
while there, um, I one day I had a, a day off or uh, went into Alexandra from where I was picking the apricots on a farm, an apricot farm, where they were exporting the apricots to Italy at the time for something like 30 cents a piece of fruit, which was a lot of money. <laughs> um, so I went into the pub in Alexandra, and uh, there was a bloke on the bar stool near me, and we started talking a bit. And I said, where are you from? And he said, oh, Alice Springs. Alice Springs! And that just really got me going. He was quite bored with you know uh, people wanting to know all about Alice Springs, so I didn't keep on about it. And then I hitchhiked up the west coast of the South Island um, and uh, was picked up by a bloke who insisted on running over all the Australian possums that kept crossing the road. And that's another story. Anyway, I finally got back to uh, Wellington. Yeah. Wellington and flew home. And then at that stage, um, I ended up hitchhiking from Sydney um, back home to Meribah in Queensland, uh, having several, you know, I'm not sure how many times I got picked up in uh, New Zealand. One one lift, I remember, there were eight little chihuahuas in the car. <laughs> it was a, an Australian Ford. It was a kind of largish, um, what the Yanks would call a... Um, what we'd call a station wagon, you know, cattle station wagon, I guess. Um, and these little dogs kept <laughs> jumping from one place to the other. There's lots of stories about that. Um, but that, that introduced me to hitchhiking and how to do it and how to get out of a car uh, if the driver was drunk and that kind of stuff, you know, pretending you were really going the other way and could they stop and let you out. <laughs> I didn't run into any trouble at all. There was nobody who I really felt threatened by, you know. Um, and uh, so finally, uh, I'm not sure, I forget now how I got from Sydney, um, where I flew from Wellington to Sydney and uh, then somehow made my way uh, north. But I remember being at a while on, somewhere north of Sydney, and I had a little green hat on, and it was the time when Che Guevara was uh, uh, in much in the news, and I had this beginnings of a moustache and this kind of green ha- military-style hat. Uh, I remember a school kid leaning out of the bus saying, Hey, mister, are you a communist? <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't much older than the kid, but... <laughs> Anyway, I thought, well, I must be all grown up now. (laughs) (laughs) And so you made it home and after this time away adventuring, uh, hitchhiking around New Zealand, you kind of knuckled down and went to university? No, I'd I'd finished um, my first year at university doing arts at the University of Queensland and came back to do the second year. Um, But I certainly didn't settle down because I was in the draft for the Vietnam War and that really uh, didn't make me feel comfortable at all. Had they offered a, a return ticket, guaranteed, I would have thought, "Oh, yeah, that's." Anyway, it it just turned out that I uh, my birthday didn't come out of the hat, uh, but in the college I was um, in at at Queensland University, there was a bloke whose birthday was exactly mine, and he'd signed up for five years of square bashing on Friday nights with the citizens' military forces, you know, the, the Nashos, they sometimes were called. And didn't he hate me? 
Oh my goodness! <laughs> Just quite literally, the luck of the draw. Yeah, your name that your birthday wasn't pulled out of that hat. Yeah, and, and so and, <laughs> and of course his wasn't pulled out of the hat, but he'd signed up to avoid um, going in the draft. That was the way you could get out oh. of the draft was by signing up for um, being. Um, I forget the name of, of what you could sign up for, but basically you signed up for every Friday night for a long time. Oh, yeah. No, yeah. I'd be pretty sour if I were him too. But, hey, given given that or the risk of having to go to Vietnam, I'm sure he still ended up with a better option. So, so Yeah, but uh, – So was New Zealand after high school you went to New Zealand hitchhiking and came back and then started uni and then went hitchhiking again after that? Uh, hang on a minute. Um, I think it was I think it was at the end of 12th grade that, that I went to New Zealand and came back to start university. But, uh, yeah, because the next year, at the end of first year, is when I began hitchhiking around Australia. And so where did uh, your hitchhiking adventures in Australia take you? I started hitchhiking with a friend uh, and we went up to Cairns, back to Townsville, out through um, Charters Towers, um, onto Mount Isa where he stayed uh, because he um, had, I think, failed everything in first year at uni. <laughs> His father, who was a psychiatrist in Newcastle, wasn't happy at all and he thought he'd better earn some money Um so I went on by myself from Mount Isa, uh, Tennant Creek, where I met somebody. I, I knew somebody who was in the same college again that I was in in Brisbane. And uh, on Christmas Day, I lobbed into the Orlando mine. The guy who picked me up in Camel Wheel um, uh, was working at the Orlando mine in Tennant Creek, right, just where I wanted to go. And the people... Uh, quite welcoming, really. I was a visitor on Christmas Day, and uh, the, the the mother of Peter, his his name was at, at uni, um, very welcoming. You know, just to have somebody different in the house, I'm sure, because the the mine was closed for Christmas, and um, Peter's father took us down the mine. There weren't any workers there, but down we went a kilometre down which uh, made me feel less than comfortable. <laughs> it got hotter and hotter as it went down, you know. Of course it does, because you're getting next to the molten mass in the centre of the earth. <laughs> anyway, we came up and I saw the first ever evaporative air conditioning unit I'd ever seen. And what it was was a big square of straw, um, just like a, a air conditioning you'll see here in Alice Springs, so that you've got four walls. But these four walls were all in one panel. And it was an aircraft propeller that was driving uh, air through the um, the straw, which was wet with continuously drinking, dribbling water. Uh, and that was then ducted underneath the house um, and the cool air came up through registers in the floor. You know? <laughs> um, anyway, I ended, ended up... Um, Going back from the mine, and I remember sitting in Tennant Creek, one of the memories I've got there is somehow I would have ended up in a pub because I was a, a drinker in those days. Um, but there was, there was the pub and there were 
the white fellas in one bar, and there weren't Aboriginal people inside, but there was a tiny little window in an alley that ran beside the pub about this big where Aboriginal people would come and buy takeaway beer, you know, which is uh, where I learned the term green cans. You didn't <laughs> order VB, you ordered green cans, yeah. uh, and there were white cans. Yeah. <laughs> and was this, this would have been in the late 60s, is that correct? Uh, that was, no, that would have been December 1967. And what was it like hitchhiking around in 1967? And you, and you said initially you'd, you'd gone off with a friend to hitchhike around yeah. Australia. I imagine... I just the idea of picking up one hitchhiker is sort of intimidating for me, but if there was two of them, like, and there's only one person driving the car, that's you're almost outnumbered. Well, um, we were both handsome looking blokes. Yeah, that's that. There's, uh, I reckon, there's a real art to hitchhiking. You know, you you sure you might put your thumb out, but you just need to give a, a, a wave like that. You don't need to keep doing this. I found that um, what seemed to work anyway was you made sure there was room for a vehicle to stop beyond you, because you wanted people to look at you as they went by and assess the situation and whether they had room or not. Give them somewhere to stop, and you know, make that. 300 metres or so, uh, and then look at them right in the face right, um, as they drove by uh, and let them see who you were, not uh, look the other way or stick your thumb out. Um, yeah, I, I don't think I ever did that. I'd just signal, you know, I'm here, and then put my hand down and then look, you know. Um, yeah, anyway, that was fine. And it, it worked for both, for two, too. In those days, it wasn't a problem, you know. There uh, weren't crazy serial killers no. everywhere. Okay. No, it, well, th- there was a young woman hitchhiking. I, I never talked to her, but when there's a lot of people hitchhiking, you, you leapfrog each person, you know, sometimes. I'll, you'll see them, you know, 300 metres away because you've moved 300 metres <laughs> to, to, to where, to where there's a park, you know, somewhere to pull off. Um, and I, I thought, gee, she's brave, you know. I never felt particularly brave, although in, um, in Camerwheel, uh, on the Queensland side, um, I was just out the, 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 uh, sitting on the veranda of, I think they called it the bottom pub. In those days, there were two pubs. There was the top pub and the bottom pub. Uh, and, there are a couple of ringers inside in the bar, and I had in those days longish hair, you know, hippie type stuff. Although hippiedom hadn't been invented then, but anyway, I had long hair and a pretend beard, I think, um, or what was you know trying to be a beard. Uh, what, what was I? Nineteen, eighteen. Um, and a couple of guys inside. One of them said, "Hey, did you see Mary at the front?" And I thought, oh, no, you know, what do I do here? And uh, so I, I left it five minutes or so, got up, walked into the bar and said, oh, can I have a pot, please, mate? And uh, they gave me a pot and I was able to just pick up 10 ounces of beer and scull it, no problem, you know. I'd had a lot of practice in my first year at university. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and so were you Mary that they were referring to? Is yeah. that what you meant? Oh, because you had the long hair. Yeah. Oh, yeah. no. So you needed to kind of establish some sort of 
male maleness. Yeah, before yeah. um, yeah. So I, I clocked back one one uh, ten ounce pot that they were called, and so oh, another one. They did the same thing, then walked outside, and I didn't hear a noise from inside. <laughs> And that was, you know, there was just open windows and stuff. <laughs> and so you were never particularly intimidated while while just out on the road hitchhiking. Did you come across any absolute nutters that you ended up in a vehicle with? No, not not um, no. Um, oh well, yes, actually, uh, but that was much later when I was hitchhiking with my girlfriend Eve. And we'd been down to see her brother in Sydney from Brisbane. And we went via the New England Highway inland. And, you know, I kind of said, come on, we'll hitchhike down, you know. Um, I I had a car, um, but I don't think I had the money to pay for petrol. It was cheaper to hitchhike. <laughs> Even I hitchhiked down to Sydney. And on the way back, um, I'd learned that if you wanted to get into a truck, you know, a, a semi-trailer-type truck, you stood at the top of a hill because they slowed down then, right? So the old how do you hitchhike, you make it easy for the person to stop. Well, Eve and I um, got down. We were halfway back. and It was somewhere in the New England Ranges that this guy picked us up. Eve got in and she was between him and me and he just said a couple of things that really made me very concerned. And one of them was, hey, do you kids want to jump in the back? You know, there's a mattress or something, he said, you know, in the back. I thought, I'm not getting in the back of a closed Pantechnicon or, you know, whatever it was. It was a big truck. I forget exactly what was behind us. Um, but I thought, you know, we get in the back there. He just drives us off into the bush, you know. Um, and... Um, Somehow I said, no, 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 we're, you know, we're, we're right. I looked in the panel, the door, the passenger's door on my side, and there was a screwdriver. And I thought, well, I just might have to use that. Um, don't know how. I'm, you know, I'm not trained in these things. Anyway, finally we got to another small town and slowed down and said, oh, look, mate, we'll, we'll stop here. Um, if you don't mind, you know. And he did. He pulled up and let us out, but that was, I checked much later, and it wasn't at the time of Ivan Milat. It didn't fit that story, you know. But yeah, that was that really was scary. But that was the only time I'd ever hitchhiked with a, a young woman. You're very lucky that you didn't come across any any special people. But it was on your that hitchhiking around Australia that first time that you first got to finally come and visit Alice Springs. Yes. What was that like? Well, um, I was surprised but after a straight line from Darwin, Darwin down here. Um, then, then we came through the old Charles Creek, right? There just wasn't a straight road into town. You went through this curly, um, uh, road, which is still there if you want to go and find it, or bits of it are. Um, and that surprised me, you know, that suddenly, but it was because we were coming through the the McDonald Ranges on the north side, and uh, well, it was it, somehow it was my goal. You know, my goal was after seeing my own reaction to the guy in New Zealand saying he was from Alice Springs. I was lucky. I had I had contacts because I'd been in the US for a year. Um, 
there were there was a book distributed with the names of all the people. There were three thousand people, three thousand high school students from all over the world, sixty nine different countries. I think it was in the US that year. And um, I had this book. I had names of people in Darwin who'd been on that program. I didn't know them, but um, its very nature was to, you know, hail fellow, well met, yeah, you know, um, welcome. Um, so I had I had the name of somebody here in Alice Springs. And I forget um, who that was at the moment, but I'm sure that it was a house pretty much like this. Right? There's a lot of houses like this in Alice Springs. They were government built, you know, and there was an oil heater there. Um, that there's evidence of that. There's a fireplace was put in, um, and the ceiling's been covered up, you know. But a lot of houses had um, oil heaters in those days, uh, and it was pretty much like this. This house that I stayed in, and these people. The the father ran a trucking business, and it was a, a girl. Um, who'd been to the US on the year before I went. But anyway, um, they said, yeah, come and stay with us, you know, no, no trouble. And I remember going to the old drive-in, right? <laughs> uh, the movies, to the memo club, um, where there were, uh, it was still Commonwealth days, you see, but there were, there were uh, scallops flown in from Tasmania that day. I thought, wow, I'm going to come and live here. <laughs> you can get scallops, Tasmanian scallops, um, in the middle of Australia, fresh, <laughs> better than I could do at home in Meribah. <laughs> <laughs> what else happened? Um, was it there that you got on the train to head south? Is that it, where you got It the- was because... What happened was, I, I say, I sat south of the Gap for three days, but really the um, the young – I wish I'd made notes, but anyway, the, the young girl in the family – not a girl, she was you know, uh, older than me. She might have been 20. <laughs> <laughs> she would come and pick me up at night if I hadn't got a lift and then take me back the next morning, but early – because that family, there was only one radio station in Alice Springs at the time, the ABC, and it would come on at 6 a.m. and go off at midnight. They didn't use an alarm clock. They just oh. they went to bed when the radio, and they went to sleep when the radio went off, and they woke up when it came back on. And so when you were going to leave Alice Springs, you just went and got dropped off at a spot and tried to hitchhike, but on the days that you were unable to get a ride, yeah. they'd just come back and check and see. Yeah. So you might spend a whole day in one spot. Oh, but that was magnificent. See, she'd drop me very early in the morning and I'd see more or less the last sun bit of the eastern sun coming up on the McDonald Ranges, you know. And um, But did you feel defeated when you've spent a whole day and no, not be able to no, get, no, able no, to get a ride? The, 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 the Little Sisters of Mercy, um, the, the, the nuns were still there. In the, there's a building that's still there. And the Aboriginal people would be sitting in the riverbed doing what they'd always done, you know. They'd be sitting and socialising with each other. And I felt quite comfortable, you know. Um, but um, somebody said to me, uh, look, mate, you're not going to get a lift. Because the, there were cars, but they were American cars. I recognise all the models. Oh, that's an Oldsmobile. Oh, there's a Pontiac, you know. 
There's a Lincoln Continental. <laughs> um, they were just the same vehicles that I'd seen in America a couple of years before. You know. uh, they were flying diplomatic flags at the time. That's when they were building Pine Gap. So they weren't going to pick me up. And somebody said, you might as well go to the railway station. So um, I might might have been taken to the railway station, I <laughs> I forget. Anyway, I had a I had a hitchhiking pack. It was made of canvas and wood, um, which is what uh, hitchhiking packs are made out or backpacks are made out of. This one was quite large. You know, I could carry a whole lot of gear in it and had a sleeping bag on the top. Um, and that made you look official if you're hitchhiking. Right? You put that on the ground that you on your standing in front of you or beside it. You you just weren't running away from somewhere. You'd made plans. You, know? <laughs> you were running away with a hitchhiking pack. <laughs> but, um, so I go to the railway station and the bloke looks at me and said, oh, sorry, mate, the train's full. You know, the river's flooded. Uh, and that's why there were no cars going. The Fink River had flooded. Um, and... Uh, but look, we can get you on if you're happy to work, you know, like if you're happy to work on the train. I thought, oh, should be good. Yeah, sure, I'm happy to work. So I ended up in the buffet car washing, uh, washing and peeling potatoes and um, washing dishes. There were three sittings of passengers in the buffet car, but only two sets of cutlery. So you had to wait for the first sitting of people to go. Somebody gathered the, the, um, all the dishes and cutlery. It was my job to wash those up with the hottest water possible and the least amount of detergent, right, so that uh, things were sparkling clean. You could just let them drip dry. You didn't actually have to use a tea towel or anything. A technique I use to this day. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, anyway, that that was really quite entertaining for me, I'd, I've been on the GAN since, and it, I've never had a trip as well. I have had one interesting trip. Um, never had a trip really as, as rewarding as that because I got paid thirty-two dollars, um, which was double time. It, it was a Sunday. I was working uh, sixteen hours. Would have been sixteen dollars, but it, because it was a Sunday, it was double time. I got thirty-two dollars. Two dollars an hour. Which so, is, that was a lot of money. That was, yeah, okay. <laughs> I'll take your word at it. Doesn't sound like it. But well, I'm- it was enough. <laughs> I phoned my father in, in when I got to Adelaide and uh, said, Dad, I've, I've, I've been a plongeur. And um, one of the things Dad and I had both read was um, uh, Down and Out in Paris and London. George Orwell wrote it. And uh, he'd spent time washing dishes in Paris and London. And in in Paris, the dishwasher was called a plongeur. And uh, Dad and I would read similar stuff or he'd say, have you read this yet? Or he had an extensive library. So I phoned from Adelaide, I've been a plongeur, a plongeur, really? (laughs) (laughs) So I don't know whether I was on the right political path or (laughs) what. <laughs> and oh, I got paid thirty-two dollars, Dad. Can you can you wire me thirty-two dollars? I'll pay it back. <laughs> uh, and so, if we were to skip forward a few years after your hitchhiking around Australia, yeah. you ended up coming back to Alice Springs. But at this time, you were 
a, a medical school. I'd finished medical school when yeah. I came back. Yeah, yeah, as an intern. So, so how yeah. do you go from sort of finishing high school, um, then, you know, going hitchhiking, then kind of going to uni, stopping that for a bit, going hitchhiking some more, to graduating medical school? It seems like a bit of a leap. <laughs> well, it was. Um, I did three years when I, when I got back from uh, the trip uh, you know, through here and then back up the east coast to home. Um, I was in second year, uh, and I, I did this trick every year at the University of Queensland. Um, I'd enrol for four subjects and sit for three. So <laughs> by the end of three years, I had nine units toward a BA. And with a broken heart over a, a, a fallout with Eve, the person I'd mentioned before, <laughs> I've mentioned before, <laughs> um, I ran off to Adelaide. And there I, um, I got a job uh, as a teacher. Uh, I was offered a job in the public service, which would have paid more, but I wanted to be, I just wanted to experience teaching. And I did that for two years and then went back to the Queensland University to, um, make an attempt at, um, doing philosophy again, uh, cause that was my major when I was going through, uh, and I'd, I'd managed to go to Flinders University while in Adelaide and got the final unit of my arts degree, the 10th unit, uh, because Queensland accepted my unit in Marxism-Leninism from, from Flinders. People said, how did you get away with that? And I said, well, I argued against it, which I did. I, I, uh, I wrote a, a, a long essay about dialectical materialism and how it was just seemed to me to have holes all the way through it. <laughs> and apart from that, I didn't go in the big demos. If I, Well, I did, but this is Vietnam and, you know, Vietnam War and um, also the apartheid stuff from South Africa. There were demos in Adelaide in those days. Had I been arrested, I might have gotten a high distinction, I reckon, for my Marxism. <laughs> but I only got a credit. <laughs> anyway, it was back to Queensland. Well, I started a Master of um, uh, Philosophy, Master's degree, or no, Master's Qualifying, it was, and that wasn't going terribly well. And I remember one day uh, the uni used to have movies on a Friday afternoon and I went and saw MASH and I thought, I can do that and went to medical school. I just love – it just sounds like you picked medical school on a bit of a whim, whereas I think for so many people it's like this lifelong dream. You kind of work your butt off at high school to get those marks to get into that degree. Like, And uh, you were a little, I suppose, in your 20s at the time and you just go and see an episode of MASH and you're like, yeah, yeah, I'm going to do this. And then you just did it. You just went to medical school and graduated <laughs> as a doctor. Well, it wasn't as simple as that. It's behind me here in my bookshelves, I've still got a little golden book called Dr. Dan the Bandage Man, I think it is, which was um, about this little kid who falls over and scratches himself. In the front of that little book, there's a, a Band-Aid. Right? Initially, they were called elastic bandages, but they didn't go around anything, they just stuck on. And uh, there's a Johnson & Johnson Band-Aid in the front of this book. When I was four, my family started saying, oh, your memory's so good, you should be a doctor. 
because at that time you had to re- supposedly had to remember everything. In fact, the, the dean of the medical school said on the first day to scare us, he said, you know, in 60, when we're doing your final exams, we could be asked anything. You could be asked a question about zoology that you're doing in first year or um, organic chemistry, anything. Um, and I thought, oh, that's just impossible, you know. But anyway, that was the approach still in those days, not now where you can go and research things uh, or Google them. Um, so I'd grown up with this thing about, you know, Greg's going to be a doctor. And when I was in the US, somebody said, what are you going to do when you get back to Australia? And, you know, it was, yeah, I'll, I'll probably do medicine, you know, but... I think the Vietnam War changed my attitude toward lots of things. My, my father had served in the Second World War as a as a pharmacist, um, and um, you know he saw action in New Guinea and Bougainville and stuff like that. So there was this thing in the family, um, or at least my father, um, and I was you know, the anointed son who was in, going to end up doing medicine, whether I liked it or not. <laughs> Did they think for a while that you wouldn't know because you'd gone and done, start, you know, done your arts degree, spent some time as a teacher in Adelaide, mm-hmm. come back with that um, degree towards the masters in philosophy? Like everything else on that path, though, just doesn't really kind of sing out, you know, medicine. Oh, I, I, my father knew me very well. The reason I hitchhiked to Darwin was, he said uh, after I. Uh, hitchhiked around New Zealand. He said, next year, why don't you go to Tasmania? He knew me very well. I went to Darwin. <laughs> <laughs> and so you you finished medical school and your mm. first job is in Alice Springs. How did that mm. come about? Of all the places you could have gone in the country, you chose or you wanted to come back well, to Alice Springs. The the um the arrangement in Queensland was that the the top flight kids would get jobs in the big hospitals in in Brisbane, and then um, you know other people would be farmed out to do their internship um, in Queensland in general, you know. And I wasn't really very happy with the way things were happening in Queensland at that time, and I guess you know I was older, really seven years older than than um, people who'd just gone straight into medical school from high school. I started looking around for alternatives, and there in the Australian, um, one Saturday I think I saw an ad for an intern in Alice Springs. What was it that you didn't like that was going on in Queensland at the time? Well, it was the time of the special police force and Joby Elke-Peterson and stuff like that. I had friends who... um, I had one friend who was picked up by the special police who started playing Russian roulette with him. Of course, there wasn't a bullet in the revolver, but that's how far they went. And um, he got clipped over the ear. Another another guy had clipped over the ear and had his eardrum perforated. Um, these are people who were in the anti-Vietnam War movement um, uh, demos and stuff like that. I think I had my demo days in in uh, Adelaide and decided I didn't meet any more in Brisbane. <laughs> <laughs> so you see this advert. So this is yeah, back in the days when ad- when jobs were advertised in the paper, and yeah. and what was the process from then on? Well, I wrote um, out here 
And I was doing, in, in my final year, I was doing a project in the Aboriginal Medical Service in Brisbane. And uh, I wrote out and I got a reply from um, Dr Charles Campbell, who was the medical superintendent here, saying, oh, we we make up our mind about this in, in October. And I think it was March that I started applying. <laughs> and I wrote back, and I forget how I said it, but I used something, took words to the effect, I can't wait until October, I need to know now. <laughs> and, Patience is and, a virtue and, and not now, one that you have. <laughs> yeah, but now I I'd, I'd, you know, realise he would have phoned people, right? Um, he would have phoned people in Brisbane uh, where I was going to university um, and people he would have known because he was actually the acting professor or a, an associate professor uh, and was famous in his own right. You know, lovely man, lovely man. Um, he would have phoned people and said, what's this guy like? <laughs> uh, and um, he wrote back and said, okay, you're it, right? So I was the first person in my year to know where they were going when they graduated. And that just, honestly, that was so relaxing for me. I got on and graduated. So the first time you came to Alice Springs, you're, you know, a teenager or, you know, late teenager, early 20s, hitchhiking around the place. By the time you leave, you're, you're, spending a few days trying to find a ride before you get on a train to work for $2 an hour on overtime. <laughs> and by the next time you come back to Alice Springs, you're a doctor. Well, you're not really a doctor until you've done your first year. You've got to do an internship year uh, and then you get registered as a doctor. Although everybody calls you a doctor in the first year. Here they thought I was second year out of medical school. A lot of the nurses didn't realise <laughs> I was as fresh and as young <laughs> as I was. <laughs> yeah, um, so uh, Dr. Campbell made me stay. I started, I graduated on the 11th of December and I started work here on the 18th of December and I stayed until the 18th of um, December um, 1979. I did say, but I've got some holidays. And he said, oh, no, 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 if you're going to England, you need to make sure that you spend a whole year here. <laughs> and he was probably quite right, you know, um, but whether that got me to work up to near Christmas <laughs> because there's always staffing problems, you know. So what was that first year as a intern like? Oh, it um, honestly, without Dr Campbell, um, for the first three months I was doing general medicine under his eye, he just led me every day to know and do more and more. Um, and it was one-to-one -one te one, one -one professorial teaching, really. Uh, um, I couldn't get better. I wasn't with a bunch of other people. Um, he was able to spend time with me. Um, I'd, I'd take a history and um, say, so, you know, this bloke fell over or something. And, well, that's the uh, trauma of trauma history. And the next day I said, what's the social history? What's his background? What's his job? You know, I'd have to take that from the next patient I saw. It went on, um, what's their past medical history? And you have to go into all the diseases they may or may not have had. 
And then one day he said, well, what's their sexual history? <laughs> oh, I haven't ever asked anybody about stuff like that, you know. So then I had to start delicately asking people um, whether they were married. That was one way of taking their sexual history, <laughs> stuff like that. Anyway, finally, he, um, he taught me how to take a history um, and he was teaching me how to examine patients. This was stuff you could graduate from medical school and people had never put one-to-one like that to really see how much you knew and what you were doing. I guess I might have been a fast learner because um, I, I do recall that when I, um, I'd been to England then after my first year and came back, back to the Alice Springs Hospital and then went into general practice, and uh, I saw a patient that he was seeing in the uh, outpatients department at the hospital, which there used to be, where people would just come in off the street. Uh, uh, and I saw this patient and I thought, oh, it took the history that he had taught me to do, right? And I thought, this this place got subacute um, bacterial carditis, uh, uh, endocarditis, which is where little germs are growing on the heart valve. And I don't know how I nutted that out. Um, and I sent him back to the hospital saying, this place got SBE, subacute bacterial endocarditis. And the next time I was in the hospital, because he used to wander in and out seeing patients and stuff, yeah. He came along the corridor and he's going like this, wiping, wiping his eye. And he said, oh, I've got to get this mud out of my eye, Greg. <laughs> Some things I'm not seeing, <laughs> which was very nice of him. Oh, so he, he thought that um, that was his way of kind of acknowledging that you'd picked up something that he hadn't. And- yeah. And, you know, what more could a teacher want than oh. a student had learned? So what were the sort of things like the the illnesses or the cases that were you were being presented with in that first year in Alice Springs? Like, was there anything about Alice Springs that do you, do you think would have been different to had you worked anywhere else? Oh, definitely. You know, you're seeing third world medicine in a first world environment, really. One story I can tell you is that when I did go to England, I, I um, ended up in Brighton um, and got a, a job in a little... Um, paediatric hospital and I was in the TV room doing nothing one time. I wasn't on call, but the phone rang and a mother said, oh, I, you know, I've just been in there and I, I, little Johnny's just not behaving properly. He's, he keeps laughing at me and he was in there 10 days ago uh, with a sore knee and they just said it was a virus. And... Uh, I thought, gee, this sounds very much like Sydenham's career. Um, and I'd seen a lot of Sydenham's career among Aboriginal people. In fact, um, very high incidence of it, and people are still trying to get rid of it. Um, you know, scabies, any skin infections can get the bacteria on your skin. And then your body fights those bacteria, but the defences your body makes thinks that your heart valves are the enemy. And they go and attack the heart valve, right? Um, and, um, or that your body does this, you know? Uh, so it's not really bacteria. It used to be thought. It's not really bacteria that are living on the heart valves. It's your own antibodies that are making things go silly, you know? 
there are a few illnesses like that, more than a few. Um, anyway, I'd seen enough of that to recognise it over the phone. It's the arthritis in the knee, kid in the right age group, laughing because the Sydenham's career is they the hands wave around as if they're dancing and they will kind of grimace and look as if they're laughing. Kids will often sit on their hands to stop them moving around. It's not a painful disease or anything, um, except for the arthritis that might be associated with it. Anyway, the mother came in and I looked through the history, looked at the kid and uh, wrote this up saying, you know, Diagnosis, Sydenham's career. Well, a bloke came down from London to look at him, um, and he was a, a neuro neurologist, but he had a special interest in in Sydenham's career, because um, what's happening in the brain to cause all of this stuff, because it doesn't seem to leave any long-term effects, you know. So there's something happening, getting into the brain, making this, this happen, and it, it does go away, you know? He didn't talk to me at all. He must have known who I was, though, because I, st- I stood there at the end of the bed as he examined this kid, um, as a neurologist does with a little tendon hammers, and he went all over him. Anyway, I later learned that I'd earned the reputation of being a brilliant Australian diagnostician. <laughs> really, recognising something like that after working here is like le- recognising your grandmother. You've seen her a few times before, and you know it's her, you know? And so what was it? You said third world medicine in a first world country, though. What was it about here that made it third world medicine? Well, uh, well, third world, world disease. Disease, okay. Yeah, in a first world medical environment. Yeah. Um, yeah, Sydenham's career is still common all over the world or will occasionally break out. You know, that you've got to get be infected with the right bug, but... Um, you know, scabies is a, a very common illness here, which um, uh, can be a precursor to rheumatic fever and um, heart, valve, heart valve damage because of it. Um, I, might, I might have the subacute bacterial endocarditis wrong. It could be that... Um, when you've had valve damage, then from from um, the initial infection, the, the bugs only come along later in life. I'd need to actually go and look up a book about that now. Getting old, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but it sounds like you just had so many experiences and you came across, you were presented with so many cases that had you gone and practised in Brisbane or Melbourne or one of the other big cities that you just wouldn't see that kind of... Yeah, and and also you wouldn't have been the only person on at night, you know, <laughs> hoping nothing went wrong. Um, yeah, it, 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 was a, you know, it was a kind of great responsibility knowing, learning when to call the boss and say, look, I've got this kid here with X, Y, Z, I don't know what to do, or muddling through, hoping that you were right, you know. What is the treatment for that illness? Um, I'm not even going to try and say its name, but the one that the child in England had and you'd seen a that's lot of Sydney's cases. Career, the, yeah. Well, the, the treatment for that's kind of hygiene, really. Um, it's getting making sure you don't get um, infected with streptococcus, which is a very common organism, but it's a particular strain of that uh, bacteria 
and it's very common in Aboriginal communities where there are um, scabies bite you, open the skin, then the bug gets in and you get a little pustule. Like you see six-week-old babies with pussy sores along the bottom of their, their feet. That sounds kind of awful. Stuff. Yeah, it, it, it is. It's, uh, um, there are those buses driving around town now with one disease written on the side. Have you seen them? I have been behind buses I've seen with like um, – Kind of cartoons about scabies on it yeah. and, and advertising that in town. So yeah. it's definitely, I suppose, still prevalent today. Yeah. So after you, after you kind of survive this first year and you do the full year from the 18th of yes. December to the 18th of December, <laughs> yes. make sure you mark off that entire first year. Yeah. You went and practiced in England for a while and then you found yourself back in Alice Springs again working as the district medical officer. Yes. Can you explain what that role is? Because <laughs> it, it's kind of got a connection to the Royal Flying Doctor Service. but It, it does. Um, a district medical officer, I think, was an English term borrowed from Africa or somewhere. Uh, and um, each of us would have a patch. So my patch was the North Road. So that's from Alice Springs up to Barrow Creek, uh, 300 kilometres. And east and west of, of that side, wherever there were Aboriginal communities. Um, I'd go out to Wallara. Um, that was part of that patch. Um, yeah, it's good. See, in England, I'd done, uh, training in anaesthetics. That was the first thing I wanted to do. Um, and that allowed you then to intubate people beside the road from a car accident and things like that, you know. Um, not only give them an anaesthetic for an operation, it was a way of learning how to resuscitate people. Although I never actually had to do that <laughs> in the five years I spent as a district medical officer. But part of that role here was um, being on call as the flying doctor, right? So you were part of the radio network, uh, and at the time I worked... The radio network had been sent at, set up first so that Flynn's idea of a mantle of safety with Traeger's radios were out on the cattle stations. Um, but the doctors were all employed. When I took my first flying doctor flight, I was employed by the Commonwealth Government of Australia as a doctor. Uh, um, no, I wasn't then because that was in my first year. <laughs> Flew out to Haas, Haas Bluff, a guy had been stabbed through his left nipple, um, and um, he was okay anyway. Basically, the nurse told me, the, the, the nurse on board the plane, there's always a nurse on the plane and the, and the pilot. It's only if it's a medical emergency that a doctor goes. Um, and this was kind of my first medical emergency as a flying doctor, but I was actually a Commonwealth employee just doing the work one day because somebody was on leave or had fallen down a hole or something. I don't know how <laughs> I don't know how I ended up on that plane. I think Charlie Campbell might have had something to do with it. Uh, said, Oh, you know, Doctor So and so is not available. Greg, do you th- do you think you could go on the flying doctor plane? Ah, <laughs> uh, yeah, yes, I think I could go, Doctor Campbell. When does it leave? <laughs> <laughs> I reckon he organised that for me because once you've been sucked in like that, um, the glory of being the flying doctor, you know. Uh, so, it, uh, so in the role as district medical officer, when there wasn't uh, 
flying doctor calls for you? Like, would you just be based in Alice Springs and then for your patch drive out kind of like on a schedule to visit places? Yes. Is that what the role – so that so you had this patch to look after but also if something – if there was an emergency and it wasn't in like your routinely scheduled visits – you'd have to get on a plane and fly out. So that's kind of where the flying well, you'd, doctor you'd came into you normally make it. the decision yourself as to whether you're going or not, depending on um, your knowledge of the – well, knowledge of usually the nurse or later it was the um, Aboriginal health workers of how much they could deal with or how much they knew and what they could relay to you. Um and there were five people when I was employed, so there were five flying doctors that were there were, but there were five people who had patches around the country, you know. Um, so uh, you might end up flying, say, to Haas Bluff, which wasn't in my patch, um, or you and Amu or somewhere. Um, but then I'd I'd fly sometimes. I'd get flown out to Wallara and stay there overnight. And then a plane would pick me up and come back. But other times I'd actually drive. If I were up at Tea Tree, which was the centre of my patch, um, I would occasionally drive from Tea Tree out to Wallara and then back to Tea Tree and stay there in a little donga overnight, which was quite pleasant, you know, because um, I, I had uh, my patch. There was the Barrow Creek pub, the Tea Tree pub, and there was also I never went into the bar early at Aileron, but there was beer at Aileron. (laughs) Anyway, I'm glad I've given up drinking now. (laughs) And did you? how did you feel about flying? Was it something that you were able to to do and you didn't get airsick? Because obviously I feel like that would have been a bit of a dent in the career plan or in the job. My brother flew when we had an aircraft carrier. He was in the Australian Navy but a, pi- a jet fighter pilot. So, um, and we had an uncle by marriage who was a navigator in Maryborough in wartime. It was English, but he'd come to Australia. Um, and he trained people to navigate. Um, so he was a teacher of navigation there. And my brother just wanted to fly. He had his private pilot license when he was still in 12th grade. Um, when he was 17, that's when you could get one. Uh, and he had, um, he joined the Air Force really, um, but he left. Um, somebody with some rank, um, got upset at him because he, his hair was too long. <laughs> and he thought that he'd never get back into the forces again, but somehow, um, he's shorter than I am, my brother. And um, he was the one who told me that there are advantages of being short because jet fighter pilots have to be short because they're small planes and there isn't a lot of room in there for six-foot-three people. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I once said to him, why did you join the Navy? And he said, well, where else would you get a thousand, a million dollars worth of flying instruction for free? <laughs> and he so was, was he flying for you? Like flying you around? Is that what he didn't? He never flew me, but he did fly out here. When he left the navy, he came out here and flew with a mob called SARTAS, South Australian and Territory Aerial Services. And I think they were a bit of competition with Conair, but I'm yet to read the book properly to find <laughs> out what, what happened. Um, and did you have to have? 
um, were you just using the planes back then purely as a mode of transport to go out and see patients or oh, were no. there times where you'd have to pick up patients and kind of bring them back and, and be working on them while they were on board? Um, well, you, you, you couldn't really work on people when they're on board, um, especially in a helicopter. I once flew up to Barrow Creek to pick up a, a lady who'd been involved in a car accident. Um, and the next helicopter flight was out to Papunya to pick up a lady in labour. Um, and <laughs> there's not much room to move in a heli- helicopter, or in those helicopters anyway. Um, no, you'd, you'd normally you would make sure that you could work on the patient before you took off, although um, there are th- occasions where you need to do things in the plane, but hopefully you've got everything sorted. You know. I certainly was involved in one kind of mad dash to try to um, – uh, well, I was involved with, with a case where an eight-month-old baby – had been burned, had 80% of uh, its body burned, either six months or eight months old. And he died as we, just as we took off from, uh, Calgary. That's another story. <laughs> you must have seen quite a few things. And I'm just thinking, what was it like going from practicing medicine in the, you know, relative stability of the, you know, the emergency department or, or hospital in town and then going to England um, where, you know, you go to work every day, you know that you're going to be at that hospital and that's where all your cases are. And then when you've got this role as a district medical officer, it's very, I guess, chop and change. Like one day you might be driving out somewhere, you might have some routinely scheduled visits to places uh, and then you never know when you're going to get called or and whisked away in an airplane or a helicopter. Yeah, well, that that so you're being paid a doctor's salary all the time you're driving the car without patients. <laughs> there were perks to it, you know. Um, and in fact, I I used to feel quite guilty because you um, at that stage of your career, you know, you really want to be in the thick of it, getting as much experience as you can, you know. Um, so. Uh, yeah, there were pluses and minuses, but it depends on, um, you know, how you feel about flying too. You, you did ask, did I worry about flying? Well, when I was still at medical school, um, or I forget exactly when, but I was still wearing Jesus sandals. So it could have been when I was still doing my arts degree. My brother took me up in a little plane. It was a Victor, right? A Victor made by the people who make Victor Motormars. And we hired, well, he hired it in Brisbane. And this is when he was jet fighter pilot, right? And he said, take your sandal off. And so we, I'm not sure how high we were anyway. Uh, he said, when I say let go, let go of your sandal, put it in front of your face, right? And hold it. Well, so <laughs> he just pointed the thing at the ground, right? And you, you fly, well, you, you fly straight down, right? It feels like you're flying straight down. Then you pull the stick back and the plane goes like this. And momentarily you're pulling negative G, right? Let go, he said to the sandal. It just stood there in front of my, it didn't move. <laughs> we were gravity, you know, uh, zero gravity. It wasn't affecting us. And, uh, I said, um, 
is this plane built to, to do this, to do that? And he said, well, I'll tell you it isn't, but all planes have to be stressed right, to, to get an airworthiness. They can't, if, if, because if, if an accident occurs and this happens, right, they've got to be able to withstand it. But they don't tell you that. <laughs> so that earlier experience sort of given you some comfort for the planes you would come to be in later just, on. Just, I mean, I knew I'd been an air training corps in the air, in the air training corps, um, and studied the theory of flight in high school. You know, as a, as part of an air training corps cadet, um, and it didn't. You know, I thought I knew how they fly, so and my brother could fly them, <laughs> so it must be safe. <laughs> So during your time working as a district medical officer, you well, during your career actually um, as a doctor, you, you've had a number of different roles and uh, you've worked in town as a GP and in the um, and then also at the hospital. You've had this role as a district medical officer. So you've had, a, I guess, a really broad experience with the locations you work and the type of cases you see, what were some of the things that you saw while working as a district medical officer where you had your own patch of country to look after and could be called out um, by plane to assist for medical emergencies? Mm, Well, uh, I think the most dramatic was the night I had a, a phone call. This is in the early 80s. I had a phone call from the... St. John Ambulance, um, and the guy on duty at St. John Ambulance that night, manning communications, often would um, uh, make a joke and things. And anyway, um, I got this phone call and said, oh, Greg, a Mack truck's just been driven into the Inland Motel at The Rock. And I go, oh, come on, Simo. Um, <laughs> there's a pregnant lady at Papunya, isn't there? He said, no, really. Um Oh, oh, what, how much do you know? He said, nothing. All I've been told is to get you to phone the policeman's girlfriend who's down there. Um, so radio telephone, which I did, got onto the policeman's girlfriend and all she could tell me was that there had been an accident. How many people involved? She didn't know. Um, and that really, uh, set the scene for, well, actually, it, 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 it is a lifelong lesson to me. Um, but what that meant was we had no idea, or I had no idea how many people were involved, what kind of equipment there was there. And for some reason, I was going through the emergency department, or CAS as it was, um, and Ross Peterkin, who um, I was yet to join in general practice, uh, but Ross was in the emergency department, uh, casualty, seeing a patient. And I said, oh, there's been a, an accident at, uh, at the Rock. And he said, oh, well, that's my patch, because he flew himself down there um, as a general practitioner and whole clinics down there. So he's more or less saying, well, that's my, my patch as a district medical officer, which he wasn't. He said, can I come? And I said, you betcha you can come. Anyway, we raced around for quite some time gathering equipment and wondering which plane we could go. And finally, we ended up going in a small Cessna with stretchers and all kind of my doctor's bag and his doctor's bag and other stuff. And um, it was only when we got down there, we discovered that there were five people dead already. 
Um, they'd been in the bar. This guy's still in jail. Um, there'd been five people killed outright and then um, there were several others who'd already been sorted in terms of um, um, emergency or, you know, how emergent they were um, by the nurse who um, worked down there. And uh, there was a policeman involved who advised people not to touch the radio telephone in the inland motel because the 240 volts might be connected to the antenna or something. And that was another lesson um, about communication. Anyway, um, it, it, it wasn't as if we had to do much. I remember... Ross and I were sorting out which people should go in the plane because other aircraft had come down by that time. I'd alerted the uh, the senior district medical officer in charge about this and and um, was trying to encourage him to get out of bed and come come with us or at least get get on deck. Um, I can remember saying, "Look, this will make international news," which it did at the time because it was roughly about a year after the Azaria incident, which ha- occurred when I was in in uh, England. Uh, so I, I do remember this, though. Um, Ross went to take the blood pressure of the first patient we were going to load on board, and I thought, well, we don't really need to know what a blood pressure is. It's low. What we need to do is get a big drip in it and pour some fluids in. Uh, um and I thought this is going to be make or break because I did want to join him in general practice, you see. And I thought he's either going to say, what do you know? But he actually did what, what I suggested. And, and that person I've actually been in contact with um, since then, that was a long night. I ended up staying there um, that whole night and in the morning uh, a, a plane um came in from Docker River with a, a little Aboriginal kid who was severely dehydrated. And um, I remember putting in a what's called an intraperitoneal. I've never done that before. But if you can't find a vein to get a drip in, everything's shut down, as we say, you know, uh, constricted from dehydration. Um, you get a large needle and put it in just near the belly button uh, and in the middle and you sneak the needle in uh, with the fluid running, and once it starts to run, then it can go in and get absorbed through the peritoneum, mm-hmm. um, the lining of the abdominal cavity. That kid didn't survive, but I, I remember a, a bloke approaching me saying um, that he'd taken film of this stuff and could I take it to Alice Springs? And maybe now I would have said, yeah, throw it aboard, but um, for some reason I was angry at the world about all of this that had happened. So, no, I don't have time because I thought I'd have to make time to deliver it to somebody in Alice Springs, that kind of thing, you know. Um, yeah, that 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 was uh, horrendous to be on that side. But the, the to me, the lesson from that was somebody needs to not want to save lives on the spot. They need to be manning the communications, telling other people who can come and help what the situation is rather than just it being a black hole, you know. 
uh, and that's where radio comes in and one of my interests, you know. If you can find a radio, use it and tell whoever else is involved what's happening, you know. Uh, in, information getting out is very important. It would have been very important that night because we wouldn't have spent two hours running around in circles in Alice Springs. We would have been there a lot earlier. And while nobody died in between the accident, the five people, nobody died after them. There was one that one the first person that we put put on board did die on the operating table. They were alive when they got here, but they had such horrendous tears of their veins inside the abdomen that they just bled out from there. You know, uh, and that two hours could well have made a difference to that person. So I suppose, like, I guess you were essentially flying blind. Like you didn't, you guys didn't know what you were walking into or flying into. No. What was required, how many people you needed, what the situation was. And if, and I guess. And the the policeman's girlfriend was kilometres away from where the accident was. I I think she was kilometres away. She didn't say, look, I'll just duck down and and see how many people, you know. Um, But there were communicate, there was communication there, but there's no point in having communication with no information. Yeah. Um, yeah, Somebody has to kind of stand back and say, well, look, I could be bandaging somebody up or taking their blood pressure, but there were enough people there that somebody could have gone to the, gathered some information, gone to the policeman's girlfriend and said, here's what's happening. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. So Uh, that's quite a, and that was during your first tenure as um, district medical officer. So mm. that's quite a, a big initiation into the role. Yes. Did, um, were you, I guess, did you have the misfortune of having many events or incidents like that to attend during your time? Uh, nothing is, you know, kind of newsworthy really, but, uh, yeah, one time I flew up to Barrow Creek, um, in a helicopter, which is one of the few helicopter journeys I'd taken, um, and that um, <laughs> said something about the kind of equipment because the patient was loaded um, across the seat tops. If you imagine a- an aircraft with aircraft-style seats, then the, the patient was placed on top of the headrests of the seats, right, and the, the roof of the helicopter was there. Uh, nothing actually happened, but if the patient had vomited or had a fit or whatever, um, then it would have been very difficult for me to to do anything. Um, once when I was working in Queensland after that, I, I intubated a patient who was being transferred, transferred from Gympie to Brisbane um, and going in a helicopter, and the people said, what, what did you intubate them for? I said, experience. <laughs> yeah, you get somebody in a small confined space, I could intubate anybody practically, you know, by then I'd intubated lots and lots, hundreds of people. Um, and, uh, you know, that's life-saving if they vomit lying on their back and can't move, that kind of stuff. Um, another thing to do with Barrow Creek was the Barrow Creek shootings. There were some young Aboriginal men who were kicked out of Walkup um, and they'd, they'd been drinking at Walkup, I think, or obtained grog there and... The story goes, and there's two versions of this story. Anyway, one version will do. <laughs> they came down to uh, Barrow Creek, and it was on dusk, uh, and they cut the generator, which mean the lights were off in the Barrow Creek pub. And 
somehow, uh, and the story's mixed in my mind anyway, they came into the pub and threatened people and were told to go away. And I'm not sure if you've been to the Barrow Creek pub, but there's a hole in the front bar, there used to be, with Santa Claus legs coming through, right? Well, that hole um, actually would allow somebody outside the pub to jump up on an awning, get into the roof space and drop into the bar. If they were armed, that would be a worry. But, um, somebody uh, inside had a, a semi-auto 22, and I'm not sure whether the shooting began inside or outside, but certainly one bloke was killed and another was shot in the back. I, I, I wasn't aware that this whole thing had taken place until I heard it on the news, I think, back here, so I wasn't on call at the time. But when I went up next time, um, the nurse from Tea Tree and I went went up uh, to Barrow Creek. You always went with the nurse from the area too. They That was their patch. They knew more about it than the doctor who was fly in, fly out. Um, but we went up. And there was a sorry camp, women's sorry camp on the west side of the road, south of Barrow Creek. And I'd never seen anything like it or, or uh, since, but the women did have dresses on. Um, and I don't know whether that was because I was coming or what, but apart from the dresses, there was nothing of European kind of origin. It was amazing. There were, there were beds. Uh, made out of plaited uh, wattle, um, reminded me of a, a, a Will Shakespeare's bed that I'd seen in Stratford-on-Avon, which was just plaited in the same way out of um, uh, saplings. Wattle really means um, that process of, and that kind of branch, you know. It isn't their flower, <laughs> national flower. Uh there were little windbreaks about this high at the head of the bed so that, you know, you could sleep on, on this bed. Um, the place had been swept with homemade brooms, upturned bushes, you know. There wasn't a skerrick of rubbish on the ground, nothing. And the women were all painted with white ochre. Um, and I checked out the, the lady. The baby was, oh, she was probably seven weeks, seven months pregnant. Everything seemed fine with what we could do with a stethoscope and feeling where the baby was and whatever. But her husband had been killed in this. He was the husband, the man who was shot dead. After that there, we went over the road to Barrow Creek and I ended up handing out Valium. Everybody was still shaking. Um, uh, Yeah, that was... uh, Kind of, you know, two worlds day that one, that one was. Uh, I did hear later that the, the person who shot the, the man dead, the dead fellow, he, he committed suicide. There was a second man who only appeared on my next trip up, so a month after. He had a 22 slug in his sacrum, which affected the nerves that control the bladder, and he was leaking constantly. You know? And he'd been afraid to come out of the bush you know, because he was part of this group had invaded the pub. You know? uh, but he did finally, and uh, we got him from 
Barrow Creek back down to Tennant Creek where the nurse uh, gave me a pile of <laughs> towels, you know, just clinical t- towels, about this high for this bloke to sit on while I drove him to Alice Springs. It was a very quiet drive. I mean, I didn't have any um, a mudra, um a language, local language, um, and and he he was very reticent. I think I. Looking back, I think he probably thought I was taking him to the police station first, you know, but I was taking him to the hospital. And I, I, you know, that was one of the things about those kinds of, that kind of job. You never actually find out what happened unless you were working in the hospital, um, or made a special visit from where we were into the hospital to follow up on stuff. So I don't really know what happened to him. Uh, in the long run. Uh, Is that hard as a doctor to know there's so many people you've treated but not necessarily because of where you are in, I suppose, the chain of responsibility or where that patient is and where they end up that you don't always know what's happened to them? uh, Particularly when you're responding to emergencies, you know, as a, you know, district medical officer, you're there for that, that part of their time of need. But yeah, then they go on elsewhere in the healthcare system. Yeah, but that that happens a lot, I guess. You know, um, it, in um, in a I can see in a movie or a series about general practice, then that would be a real real concern. But there's somebody new coming in. That case doesn't stay there as it does in a, a sitcom, well, not a sitcom. You know, as in a. Uh, a, a movie, a TV series. Yeah. Yeah, that's part of the drama, right? There's more drama down the track and, you know, you've played your role in that bit. Nobody's come along and said, geez, you really messed that up, you know. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Um, but a district medical officer was both, you know, the emergency role um, was when you're on doing the flying doctor stuff. But when you were there on your patch, it was really more like a GP. So my visit to... The sorry camp, the women's sorry camp was a GP role and then going to the Barrow Creek pub was to see how the people were faring, you know. Um, as I said, you know, it was Valium that, um, they asked for. Um, and that's much more a GP role. <laughs> Although Valium is an excellent emergency drug or used to be when it worked <laughs> until, until it got a bad name, but it was an excellent drug for many things. In amongst your time working as a district medical officer, uh, and also you've spent a lot of time in in Alice Springs, like as a GP, but also even in the emergency department or the casualty department, what are the cases that sort of stick with you? Oh, um, well, (laughs) one case was, was, um, to me, it was quite dramatic. Uh, I, I was the director of the department, which meant I spent a lot of time administering and stuff. But a lot of that time, I would be on the internet and finding out what was the, uh, what, what, uh, you know, things were being done. One of them was uh, Melbourne Cricket Ground, where I think it was Kerry Packer had um, sponsored a doctor to use uh, defibrillators and. Um, this guy worked out that if you had somebody who could use a defibrillator um, every 20 metres 
that meant that around the cricket ground, because the heart attacks would happen often, 100,000 people, something bound to go wrong there. Well, this person could go 20 metres that way and 20 metres that way, you know, so that they covered a, quite a, a lot. I'm not sure if it was 20 metres or 100 metres, but anyway, they did. And this worked. They were able to save lives. And remembering this, one day a taxi pulled in at the old emergency entrance um, and this guy had seen him around town. He was, I think he was from Papua New Guinea um, and he had something to do as a preacher of some kind, I think. The taxi pulled up and this guy actually fell out of the passenger door onto the, the bitumen um, and... He'd, somebody said he'd been complaining of chest pain. It must have been the taxi driver. Uh, and my staff were saying, quick, get a trolley, you know, uh, get a trolley, bring it here, you know, to pick him up off the ground, take him inside. And I said, don't bring the defibrillator here. Right? He's just lying on the ground, nothing to stop you defibrillating him. It was quicker to grab the defibrillator, bring it there and go zap. Worked. Saw him walking around town for years later. <laughs> he didn't know who I was. <laughs> what were some of the big changes I imagined during the, your time as a doctor from the late 70s to to more recently that you've seen great advances in medicine, um, particularly practising out, out bush? What have been some of the biggest changes you've seen? Uh, I guess the introduction of defibrillators out bush is something. Once the, the nurses were having a conference and they asked me to give a talk about what they could do if somebody was having a heart attack, and I said, there's there's really very little you can do um, unless you've got a defibrillator. Um, and I, I just got a negative response out of that because I didn't have the answer. But um, I think they might have taken that home and upstairs to where the money is because these things are money. Uh, and now there are defibrillators in clinics out bush. You know? I didn't have any role in doing it. I just said, that's what you need. Um, and I, I remember them saying, yeah, but can't you tell us something we can do? Um, I didn't say, well, you know, get your boss to buy a defibrillator, but it happened. Yeah. Um, oh, I guess, you know, the other things change, that the radio is gone and sat phones are in. Um that kind of stuff, uh, big change really. Uh, I remember working in the office one time in town and a mother from Mount Bush phoned up and and said, uh, little Johnny, it's always little Johnny, <laughs> little Johnny's got this these sores all over him, you know. And I said, oh, it sounds like um, impetigo, you know, school sores. I was too young to go to school. He's only eight months old. Well, <laughs> anyway, just just describe the describe the uh, the the sores to me, and and mother said, Have "You got the internet?" I said, "Yeah." He said, "I'll send you a picture," <laughs> and uh, that was a big change. I mean, I was computer savvy, but I wasn't computer savvy <laughs> then. That was the first um, uh, video image, you know. Came in, yeah, it was in Patigo, but yeah, it was nice to see that photo. <laughs> Just to be so, to be so sure, you know, rather than guessing. What were the biggest challenges for you practicing medicine throughout your time in Central Australia? Oh, not knowing enough. 
Um, it, it, it certainly is, um, you know, anxiety making, um, and, uh, that, you know, reflected on family life and stuff like that. But, uh, there's nothing that, that I regret, um, terribly, terribly, you know, things do go wrong. And it's hard sometimes to live with um, some of those where you think that maybe if you'd done something different, the outcome might have been different. You're only human. Like I think we we expect a lot of people in the medical Mm. system and I think it's pretty easy to forget that you're only human. Yes. Like, And there's only so much you can do and with what knowledge and experience you have at the time in that particular environment mm. with all the other, you know, things that make up those circumstances – yeah. You're just a human, just trying to well, do a job. Well, the lawyers job. don't agree with that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. That but that's their one. job, you know. Yeah. I, I used to say um, that the nurses were God's police for the doctors. You know, they they looked over your shoulder to make sure that you weren't doing anything absolutely silly. There's lots of them that have, when you come on board, they're there. They've had a lot more experience than you have, you know. Um, well, you know, they've seen a lot more and um, uh, know when somebody's kind of doing something that they've never seen done before. uh, uh. Mm. For my final question, I'd like to ask you, looking back on your life so far, what would you say is the major takeaway lesson? Well, you know, one of the things is I'm still here in Alice Springs and that to me is that my experience here um, and um, somehow just feeling that this is home and it's where my life has been and I just don't think that I can find a new place to live uh, that I would feel comfortable in. Did you ever think when you first came through as a hitchhiker that this is where you would spend the majority of your life, build your career, raise a family, retire. You know, this is where you've put your roots I, down. I did that when I was coming back here, not not from the first time, time. but I came here um, thinking I will, I will go to Alice Springs. Uh, one of the interesting things is that where people do their, you know, it's known, where people do their internship, they tend to stay. Uh, um, they don't move. You know, a lot of doctors will go where they started um, their hospital work and then go into general practice in a small country town or something. So it was quite a formative experience for you then and for many people by the sounds of it. Yeah, yeah. I don't know whether that's still true because, you know, all the foreign doctors don't stay where they did their internship. They come to Australia, you know depriving their own country of <laughs> much-needed skills. It, um, uh, maybe I, that was one of those things that was, uh, what do they call it, self... Fulfilling prophecy? Self-fulfilling, or, yeah, or, you know, the, the ev- you gather the evidence that suits your... Confirmation s- bias? Confirmation bias, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't feel that... I need to leave Alice Springs because of th- some things might have gone wrong. You know, um. 
you've had a long and varied career in medicine in both Australia and overseas, and you've seen so much and, and had so many experiences. Looking back, I suppose, on all the times that you've had and for, you know, I, I just can't help but feel that you have learned so much along the way. And I mean, you can't go through these experiences without kind of it shaping who you are and who you've become. What advice would you have to our listeners? I guess just, just some general life advice. Well, while it's, it's hard to do, um, one of the, um, books I read when I was still a medical student was called, uh, in English, Equanimity. Um, it's written with the Latin name Equanimitas by, um, Sir William Osler, who was a Canadian, uh, also practiced in America. Uh, in the early 1900s, and he's uh, uh, very, very famous um, practitioner at that time. Well, e- equanimity um, is equal, uh, reference to being equal. So it's um, even-handedness uh, with yourself, um, not even-handedness like the scales of justice, but it's even-handedness in your own mind and with your own emotions. But, uh, his book on equanimity was something that um, I strive to maintain through adversity, um, success, uh, failure, um, his recommendation to maintain equanimity uh, was something that I've always held on to. And uh, as I get older, it's a, a feeling of having everything balanced. Um, and uh, while uh, it's probably easier to achieve that feeling uh, in retirement, um, it was something that I tried to keep in mind uh, through all those years. <laughs> 